0: You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Mystery is one of the things that we see incredibly often within the true crime world. Even when we find answers to stories, there are often even more questions presented that never get answered. That is what makes it appealing to so many people, I believe. If you want a mystery, you can find one in most true crime stories. And if you want a case that you can chase and hypothesize about forever, true crime also routinely gives you that. This week we're going to talk about a man that went from Surrey, British Columbia, Canada all the way to Knoxville, Tennessee in the United States and wound up dead. This case is one that baffles everyone to this very day. There are almost no answers to why this man left Canada, went to the United States, or did any of the things that he did up until his death. His murder brings even more mystery, as there are seemingly no answers as to why someone wanted him dead and how things ended up as they did. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode sixty seven of Gone But Never Forgotten The Baffling Story of Blair Adams. Robert Dennis Blair Adams was born on December 28, 1964. His parents were separated, but his mother's name is Sandra Adams, and he also had a brother named Tom Welland. As Robert grew older, he decided to go by the name Blair, and he also found himself working overseas in Germany for his stepfather. His stepfather owned a prefab construction company that was named Double S Cedar Homes. Double S builds and delivers homes within Canada and the United States and also has shipped homes to countries around the world, including China, France, Germany, Japan, the UK, Spain, and Taiwan. Blair lived in Germany for a while and he even enjoyed his life over there. While there, he even met a German woman at a party and the two of them started to date. She would describe Blair as a complete and total gentleman. She said that he was caring, doting, and just an all-around exemplary boyfriend. The interesting thing of note, though, is that everyone else that knew Blair when he lived in Germany seemed to know a different man. He had a reputation of being addicted to alcohol and drugs, and he also had a history of becoming aggressive and confrontational when things didn't go his way. He also kept most of his life as a secret from everyone else because it seemed that he did have a lot of paranoia, even though there was not a diagnosis of any mental health issues. Some of those people thought that it was brought on by his alcohol addiction. Eventually though, Blair would leave Germany and seemingly stop working with his stepfather. He moved back to Canada and started a job as a site foreman for a construction company in BC. Canadian Blair seemed to pretty much have his life together and in order, much in contrast to the life that he seemingly lived in Germany. Blair seemed to be living a normal life. He had friends, he had strong relationships, and he was close with his family. When he returned to Canada, he had even started to attend AA meetings, and that seemed to have helped him a great deal. Everyone around Blair believed that he had stopped abusing alcohol and drugs and that he had got his life back on the rails. It is said that Blair was even well-liked at work and respected. The company and the employees all said that he was very good at his job, and that he worked hard and took a great deal of pride in running the show and doing his work. However, investigators would find that near the time of his, of his life that this episode covers, Blair's work had started to slip a little bit. He was cutting corners and people said he was growing careless, something that they had never really seen from him before. It was around this time that he also stopped attending AA meetings. So, many people surmise that Blair had possibly started drinking again. I should add here that there is no corroboration that ties those things together, but over the years many people, professional and amateur, have looked at those facts and wondered if Blair had again given in to alcohol, and that is why people started to notice changes in his life and in the ways that he acted. Then came the week that makes this poor man's life into a true crime episode. Things really started to change on July 5th, 1996, when Blair was 31 years old. On that date, Blair would go into his bank and he would empty out seemingly all of his savings. He withdrew his money from the bank and he emptied out his safety deposit box. He had taken out more than $6,000 Canadian from the bank, which was the equivalent of about $10,000 today. He also emptied that safety deposit box of all of the cash, jewelry, gold, and platinum that he was saving. All of this was done without telling anyone why he would do such a thing. In fact, he didn't even tell anyone that he was thinking of doing that. Around this time as well, about the only red flag that his mom can remember is that one time she did ask why he was, what was wrong with him because she noted that he had become much more depressed, downtrodden, and even defeated. His response to his mom was baffling then and is still baffling today. He told her that he wasn't sure if he should tell her about it. To this day, nobody knows what it was or is, but he certainly wasn't telling anyone. On July 8th, Blair drove into his work, but he was not going to work. Instead, he drove there to quit his job and to try to pick up his last paycheck, which he did not receive. Two days after he took all of his savings out of the bank, Blair would seemingly, on a whim, decide that he was going to go on a trip. He got in his Chevrolet and he drove the Canada-United States border with the plan of catching the ferry that ran from Victoria, British Columbia to Seattle, Washington. What Blair did not plan for was the questioning and the searching that he underwent at the border. U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement actually told Blair that he would not be able to board the ferry and he would not be able to gain entry into the United States. What they saw was probably much different than what Blair was at that time. They ran his background and saw that he had a history of convictions for drugs and assaults, and they also simply saw a man that had a lot of money with him for such a trip. They believed that Blair was a drug trafficker, and as such, he was turned around and told to go home. The agents said that Blair appeared to be incredibly high-strung and anxious when he was there. Two days later, Blair would again be stopped at the border. This time, he was intercepted on July 9th, trying to cross the border on foot at the Pacific Highway border crossing, which connects Blaine, Washington, and Surrey, British Columbia. Officials that came across him said that he had scratches on his legs and on his hands. They also noted that he matched the description of a man that was believed to have been involved in a car theft, where the car was deserted near that particular border crossing. Blair told officers that he was not the man that they were looking for, and they did let him go with no evidence, but also prevented him from crossing the border again. Somewhere in the days between, Blair also went to visit one of his friends, and he told her that he needed her help to get him across the border to the United States. He told her that someone was after him, and that someone was trying to kill him. Finally, on July 10th, Blair would gain what he was looking for, passage into the United States. He crossed the border in a Nissan Altima that he had rented at the Vancouver International Airport. When he arrived in Seattle, he bought himself a round-trip plane ticket to Frankfurt, Germany. Many people have hypothesized that he did this because he intended to go back and to reunite with the woman that he had been dating in Germany. However, she would tell investigators that she was not expecting him. On the same day, though, he turned that airline ticket back in and instead he purchased a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. Investigators would say that even this was incredibly strange. They said that he bought his one-way ticket for more than $700 when he could have purchased a return ticket instead for less than $400. When Blair arrived in Washington, he rented a Toyota Camry from the airport just before 7 a.m. on July 10th. A little later in the morning, he was actually involved in a minor fender bender when he backed into another car on U.S. Route 250 in Troy, Virginia. The driver of the other vehicle that was involved said that Blair had been a very nice man, but that he seemed frenetic and in a hurry. On the evening of July 10th, Blair would arrive in Knoxville, Tennessee. For those of you that may not be well-versed in American geography, This means that Blair had flown almost 2,800 miles, or 4,500 kilometers, from Seattle to Washington, D.C., only to then drive another 480 miles, or 770 kilometers, back east from D.C. to Tennessee. I think that we need to say that word again here. Baffling. The first sighting of Blair in Knoxville happened around 5.30pm. An Interstate Repair Service driver was called out to a gas station in Knoxville, and there he was met by Blair who said that he was unable to get into, or start, his rental vehicle. He said that the key was suddenly not working. When the driver arrived, he saw that Blair had been trying to gain access to the vehicle using a Nissan key the car that he had rented on the west coast on his rental, but his current rental was a Toyota. The driver told Blair to empty out his pockets and told him that if he had the car at the gas station, that meant that he obviously still had the correct key somewhere. After discovering that they would not be able to gain access to the vehicle and finding out that the rental company couldn't get him a key until the following day, the driver towed the car to a safe place and then dropped Blair off at a Fairfield Inn in Knoxville, Tennessee. Once Blair was at the hotel, his actions did not become any less perplexing. On the CCTV at the hotel, Blair was seen spending about 40 minutes going in and out and walking back and forth at the hotel. Finally, he would purchase a room for $100. US dollars. When the transaction was completed, Blair walked outside of the hotel again, and it is believed that this CCTV footage was the last time that he would ever be seen alive, aside from whoever attacked him. It would also later be determined by investigators that Blair did not even ever set foot inside of the hotel room that he had purchased. In the early hours of July 11th, officers would be called to a parking lot of another Fairfield Inn location that was still under construction. This was located at the I-40 interchange and the body was found naked from the waist down and with his shirt torn open. His pants and his socks were located near the body but pulled inside out, which investigators noted was likely because someone else had removed them. His shoes were also located nearby. Scattered around the body was money from Canada, the United States, and Germany that equaled roughly $4,000. Also found at the scene was a small duffel bag that had maps and travel receipts and a fanny pack that held the gold, platinum, and jewelry that Blair had taken from the bank. Strangely, one of the pieces of evidence that was also discovered at the scene was the key to Blair's rented Toyota. Investigators noted that there were many scratches and cuts on Blair's body, and they believed that they were defensive wounds. The autopsy would show that Blair had suffered some kind of attack that had ruptured his stomach. The official cause of death was sepsis stemming from abdominal perforation. Blair also had a wound on his forehead that was believed to have been caused by something like a crowbar or a club. It was also believed that Blair had been sexually assaulted. Investigators would spend time trying to determine if Blair had a history of seeking out sex workers or if he had a history of homosexuality because originally the crime was deemed to have been sexually motivated because of the state of undress that the body was discovered in. The only piece of evidence that was found at the scene of the crime was one strand of long hair that was gripped still in Blair's hand when they found his body. What is interesting is that as of 2010, local law enforcement said that they had never received one credible tip in the murder of Blair Adams. Pretty much the only thing that came from the discovery of the murder was a composite sketch that was made up based on a description that was given to investigators by two women of a man that they believed they saw speaking to Blair outside of the Cracker Barrel restaurant in Knoxville. And that is what we know. There are so many questions in this case. First and foremost seems to be what happened. It is obvious that the murder was not committed as a part of a robbery, as it seemed that all of the money and belongings that Blair should have had were still at the scene. In recent years, Blair's mom has admitted that Blair did have a previous relationship with a man, so there is a chance that that could be a piece of the story, but no evidence was ever found. DNA was retrieved from the lone strand of hair that was found on Blair's person, However, it was never matched to anyone that was in the system. There certainly are a lot of questions surrounding Blair's behavior. He was certainly very erratic and seemed in all of his interactions during the last week of his life to have always been anxious and in a hurry, if not downright strange. Blair pacing around the hotel even for almost an hour before finally renting a room was also incredibly disconcerting. It has now been nearly 27 years since Blair was killed and it's crazy that there is just nothing else on this case. So many movements that he made in the days leading up to his death were so well documented and then it seems that the trail just went incredibly cold. As I do whenever I cover cases like this one, I want to appeal to you, the listener. If you happen to know something, anything, that could potentially help out with this case, please reach out to the authorities. Blair's mom had even appealed on many occasions to just get some closure on what happened to Blair. It seems that regardless of what happened, this was a man who believed that someone was indeed after him. Whether that belief was real or perceived doesn't matter. On one hand, perhaps we have a case of a man who truly knew that someone was out to get him and he tried to escape. His strange travel patterns certainly would lead one to believe that he was scared. On the other hand, it could very well be that Blair was experiencing some kind of mental health distress and that it was strictly paranoia that was driving the belief that someone was out to get him. Whichever one of those things is true, the end result was sadly the same. In that parking lot in the wee hours of the morning, Blair was brutally attacked, sexually assaulted, and killed, and we still do not know why this happened or who was the person that did it. That is a travesty. So many of these types of crimes to seem to go unsolved and I cannot begin to understand what that is like for families and friends of those involved. Another mystery that I'm putting out into the world and hoping that perhaps I can play some small part in finally getting some answers. What do you think happened to Blair Adams? Do you think that we will ever get a definitive answer? Let's start the conversation on social media. I would love to hear from each and every one of you in regards to this case and any other cases that we do cover. I will share my personal thoughts on the case over on Patreon to see if we can get the discussion started. In the meantime, I hope that all of you out there strive to be better. And as always, I want to thank you for spending your time with me here on Gone But Never Forgotten. See you next time.